0: Well, here's the question. Have you ever been to Gath? I wonder, has anybody in our church been to the ancient Philistine city-state of Gath? Or have you been to the cave of Adullam, just not very far from Gath, uh, there between Gath and Jerusalem, uh, this... uh, arid cave in the mountainous region of Israel. Have you been to Gath? Have you been to Adullam? I think some of us have been, and you may not know it. I think some of us are there today. So I want us to read about Gath and Adullam and see if this seems familiar to us. And so we're in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And we'll finish this chapter and read a little bit of chapter 22. I'm going to go quickly here through this passage part uh, because we're going to get to another passage where we're going to slow down a little bit. You should know as we get to this that it's about David. David is not the king of Israel. He is though the future king of Israel. The present king is Saul. And Saul hates David. He's jealous. He's angry. He's He's bitter at David. And so he's seeking to kill him. David is on the run. Now David has had so many ups and downs in his life. It's just extraordinary. Uh, We go all the way back to the first time we saw David. His father, David's father, assembled all of his sons for a special event. Everybody but David. And can you imagine how David must have felt when he finally found out that his father assembled all of the worthy sons but left David in the fields? And then, though, that that would have been a down, but then David was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the future king of Israel. So that would have been a great high in David's life. Well, then, just a short time later, David goes to the front lines of the battle versus the Philistines to check on his brothers. And in front of many of the soldiers there, uh, David's eldest brother ridicules him in front of everybody. And that would have been a terrible thing, a terrible investment, uh, not investment, but uh, embarrassment, terrible embarrassment. And then shortly after that, there was an up, David defeated Goliath. That's a great thing. He's on top of the world. But then The king tries to kill David. That would have been a bad day. And so he had a down. And then he had an up because he married the daughter of the king. And then he had a down because the king tried to kill him again. And it's up and down and up and down. And last week we saw that David had fled the palace because he knew that the king was trying to end his life and he was so desperate he was so hungry he had to sneak to the temple and beg for the consecrated bread that's how hungry that's how desperate he was and that's where we are as we come to the middle part of first samuel chapter 21 david's life has been a roller coaster and it's it's about to get worse so t- chapter 21 verse 10 says David fled that day from Saul's presence and he went to King Achish of Gath. So here's Gath. He's going to Gath. Now who are the uh, enemies of the Israelites? Who is it that they're locked in battle a, a, a blood battle to the death? Who's the enemy? The Israelites. What's the capital? Not the Israelites. The Philistines. The Philistines are the enemies of the Israelites. What is the capital? One of the capitals for the Philistines. It's Gath. David is running to uh, to the enemy. Now, something else you should know about Gath. They had a hometown hero in Gath. You know who it was? Goliath was from Gath. And what had just happened to Goliath? He had just been killed. Who killed him? David. So David is going back to the city that is the capital of the enemy and the hometown of the man he had just uh, killed in, in battle. Have you ever been, listen church, have you ever been so wrung out so fatigued, so frustrated that you couldn't think straight. I think that's where David was. He's gone to the worst place he could possibly have gone, but he's just desperate. That's what we see in verse 10. Verse 11 But Achish's servant said, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. I mean, he should have been afraid of him long before then. It says, so he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So does this sound like a good plan? David has gone absolutely nuts. Have you ever been to Gath? (laughs) David is acting like a madman. And I don't know if that was his decision Or that was just his explanation afterwards. But he's a madman. Look at verse 14. Look, uh, you can see the man is crazy, Aches said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? And then verse 15, listen, this is a verse I need to memorize. Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 22, we'll continue to read. It says, so David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. So he's left Gath, he's in Adullam now. And when David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him. You'd think that's a good thing. It was not. Uh, we'll see. Verse 2, in addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him. And he became their leader. 400, about 400 men were with him. Uh, you want to say, wow, finally, David has some supporters, 400 men. But you read about the men and you, you can quickly conclude that they probably brought more problems than they did help. Verse 3, from there David went to Mizpah of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So here he is making arrangements for his aging parents who had inserted themselves in the middle of the crisis. Apparently David's brothers were of no help because David's doing this himself. Uh, Verse 4 says, so he left them in the care of King Moab and they stayed with him the whole time that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in the stronghold, leave and return to the land of Judah. And so David left and went to the forest of Harath. And so he finally takes care of his parents and he gets back in the cave. But then somebody tells him that the Uh, not so secret location of this cave had been compromised. And so Saul is on his way. And so now David's running again. He's running again. Can't you see that David's life is falling apart? He's frustrated. He's apparently going through some mental emotional breakdown, acting like a crazy man, slobbering on the gates of the enemy city of Gath. He is uh, He has the burden of his family. He has the burden of all these people who came to help but brought their own problems. And now he can't even stay in his hiding place because that's been compromised and he has to leave again. Have you ever been to Gath or to Agilom? I think many of us have. Some of you are there today. You're just at a time and in a place where you're frustrated, where you're angry, where you feel mentally and emotionally uh, on the edge when it seems like everybody around you needs more than they want to give. It seems like uh, your uh, family, your friends, your coworkers, it's all crushing in on you. You have the responsibility of the world on your shoulders and you like David are staying just one step away from disaster. David, every time he moved, he, he moved just right before Saul got there to end his life. I believe that many of us either have lived or we are living in Gath or Agila. Now, what did David do when he was in that cave and now he's told he's got to leave the cave And he's under all of that pressure with all of those problems, one step ahead of disaster. What does David do? Well, interestingly, David prayed and he wrote down his prayer and we have it in Psalm 142. Uh, We can't be 100% sure, but uh, if you'll turn to Psalm 142, you'll see a little uh, inscription at the beginning of the psalm that says that David prayed this uh, when he was in the cave. Uh, there was one other time when David was in a cave, the cave of Engedi. Uh, we'll see maybe in a week or two. But this likely, Psalm 142, this is what David prayed when he was in that time of distress. So let's look at this. Let's read this Psalm. It's brief. It's a prayer that David prayed. He says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I plead aloud to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. I reveal my trouble to him. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is how David describes his prayer. Now, there would have been much more to the prayer than just what we have recorded here. Uh, This likely would have been a very long prayer. But notice David characterizes the prayer by saying four things about it right there in those two verses. He says he cried aloud to the Lord. He says he pled aloud to the Lord. He says he poured out complaint before the Lord. And it says he revealed his trouble to the Lord. So what did David do? What David very honestly, openly, verbally, the Bible says, explained his situations, his fears, his frustrations before the Lord. David just poured out his heart. Now, before we read any more, I want you to see a couple of quick lessons there. First of all, when you're hurting, when you're frustrated, when you are on the edge, you should pray aloud. That's what David did and that's something that we rarely do today. Most often when we pray, we pray silently. And and that's okay to pray silently. Uh, But I want you to know that the biblical pattern of prayer is to always pray aloud. That is always the biblical pattern for prayer. And there's just something about saying aloud what are the frustrations of our heart saying it to the Lord. Not complaining about the Lord, but complaining to the Lord. We need to say it aloud. The second thing I want you to notice there is that you should give your hurts, frustrations, and fears to the Lord. That's one of those Christian things we say that I think sometimes we don't even know what we mean when we say it. If you've got a problem, give it to the Lord. If there's something you're worrying about, give it to the Lord. If you're frustrated, give it to the Lord. But what does that mean, give it to the Lord? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means just what David does here in These first two verses, it means to explain it to the Lord. It means to tell God every detail. Tell God what has happened. Tell God what has been said. Tell God what the other person did. Tell God how you feel about that. Tell God about your mental, emotional stress. Tell God what you fear is going to happen in the future. Tell God what you think you should do. And then tell God what you more likely will do. Tell God everything that's how you give it to the Lord. The Bible says this in the New Testament, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't worry about anything, so don't keep it, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. So if you will pray, if you will give it to the Lord, if you will explain it in detail, intricate detail to the Lord, the Bible says that there is a peace that's from God that you can't even explain that you'll experience in your life. David did that, and you see it in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 3. He says, Although my spirit is weak within me, you know my way. Along this pass, path I travel, they have hidden a trap for me. And I think there's a very interesting word in, in that verse. It's the word trap. You notice that he doesn't say along the path, that's the way he's living and the, and the decisions he'll make, the path. He doesn't say along the path that there are dangers. He says along the path there are traps. And I think the difference there is important. See, when we think that there are dangers along a path, we often will say to ourselves, I can manage that danger. If there's some pain in this temptation, in this sin, I can just, I'm okay with that. I can handle the pain. We think if there are dangers on the path, maybe I'll just be wise enough and clever enough that I will avoid the dangers. And we do this negotiating, and we talk ourselves into going down some dangerous paths. But see, David saw the path differently. He didn't say that there was danger on this path. He says there were traps on this path. Now, what's the difference? Well, a trap is something you don't see until it's too late, right? You don't see the traps. You're going down a path. You don't see the trap until you are in the trap. That's the very nature of the trap. And so when we see sin, when we see temptation as a trap and not just a danger, it'll give us, I believe, added godly wisdom to avoid that. Now, let me talk just a moment to to men especially. Oftentimes, men will look at the danger and they will decide they can handle it or avoid it. Take, for instance, something like pornography. Pornography. And a man will say uh, very often, I know that that's a sin and I know that there's danger, but I've calculated the danger. I think I can handle it. I don't think the danger is that bad. It may hurt, but nobody's going to know. And the, and, the, and the damage it's going to do is just not that significant. And so we talk ourselves Men will talk themselves into going down that path because they think they can handle the danger. I'm going to put some limits and I'm not going to look beyond this and I'm not going to look any more than this. And and, and we think that we can outsmart the danger. But men don't see pornography as a danger, see it as a trap. There are things in that sin that you don't even know about that are going to trap you, that are going to make it difficult for you to escape, that are going to cause you to regret. What happens if a person walks into a physical trap and he's caught? The first thing he does is he regrets it. I would have never gone down this path if I knew I was going to fall in the hole. If I was going to succumb to the trap, I never would have done this. And then he finds it often very difficult to get out. You're trapped. If you're hurt maybe you hobble on down the path. But if you're trapped the very nature of a trap is you're stuck. It's very hard to get out from a trap. We need to see men see pornography not just as a danger. It is a danger. See it as a trap because you don't even know all of the danger that's there. Take some relationship at work or somewhere in your life that uh, is just a little bit over the line and you know that that's sin and you know that there's temptation, but you can handle it and you're going to put some barriers around it and you're going to be careful. As long as you see it as a danger, you'll negotiate with the danger, but no, see it as a trap. There there are traps you don't even see. You're not even aware of, and you won't be aware of them until you have regret and you're finding it hard to get free hard to get free. So interestingly, David calls this a trap. Look at verse 4. He says, look to the right and see, no one stands up for me. Uh, There is no refuge for me. No one cares for me. Now that's interesting because David has 400 people around him, plus he had his parents and his brothers. See, David was not alone, but David was unsupported. So I think me and you, and I'm as guilty as anybody, we're, we're just unaware often of the hurt that's around us, the people who are struggling around us. That's where David was, people all around him. It's interesting in the original language, what is translated in our Bibles, no one cares for me. You know what it says literally? It's an idiom. It, it says literally, no one sought after my soul. So David has all of these people around him, 400 men plus family, his family. And he says nobody even cared. Nobody even sought after what was going on. Church, if, uh, if you're not in a small group, if you're not in a Sunday school class, it is very likely that you come Week after week after week in worship. And no one will ever seek after your soul. And you may be dying on the inside. And God's provision for you may be in the other people in this church. But if we're not in small groups where we get to know one another, uh, we may suffer. David suffered. Look at verse 5. He says, I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my shelter, my portion in the land of the living. Notice David doesn't say, Lord, you have provided for me a shelter. Now he said, Lord, you are my shelter, my portion in the land of the living, not just in the future. He's not talking about the afterlife, but you are my portion today. Look at verses six and seven. Uh, Listen to my cry for I am very weak. Rescue me from those who pursue me for they are too strong for me. David Uh, definitely needs the Lord's help. He recognizes that. Free me from the prison so that I may praise your name. The righteous will gather around me because you deal generously with me. That's a description of the result, the victory that we can have in the Lord. But I want to focus on verse 5. When David's life was coming unraveled and it seemed like there was no good future, David was able to say something in verse 5 that I think is extraordinarily important. Now, I want to ask you to give me a little grace uh, for a moment. I'm going to do something I've never done before. And, and this is not just a, uh, some sort of sermon device, some communication trick. Uh, it just absolutely comes from the heart. Uh, pastor friend here in town, about my same age... Uh, <laughs> passed away about a month ago six weeks ago now and uh that you know that makes you think about things and and um i don't know maybe a little sentimental time of the year for me for some reasons and uh what i want to do if you'll allow i want to take the next few minutes and i just want to preach to my three daughters can i do that I have three daughters. Only one of them is here. The other two are uh, grown up, moved off. Uh, But I'm close to them, and I'm I'm hopeful that they'll listen to this uh, message. I want to tell you uh, what I would say from this scripture passage, what I'd say to my three daughters. If I were in the hospital today, not to be overly dramatic, but if I were in the hospital and the doctor said I had 15 minutes left on this earth in this life and my girls were gathered around my bed there is no doubt in my mind what i would say i have one statement one truth one discovery i have made in life that i would tell them and i want to share that with uh, with you i would look to my girls And I would say to them, girls, the Lord is my portion. You see, that's what David said. And I think that's what I would say. I know that's what I would say. I would say, Hannah and Emily and Ray, if you only remember one thing about your dad, remember this. For me, the Lord is my portion. Girls, if someone asks you to name one thing your dad accomplished in this life, please say, our dad finally figured out that the Lord was his portion. And if my life has had any impact on your life at all, I'm asking you, embrace the Lord as your portion. Now, let me explain what that means. Uh, We see it here in verse five, Psalm 142, five. This isn't the only place we see it in scripture. David said it three other times in the book of Psalms. Jeremiah said it once in the book of Lamentations. But what does it mean? It's sort of odd sounding. The Lord is my portion. That's not common uh, phrase that we would likely say today. So what, if, what does it mean? Well, it goes back to something uh, in history that every Jewish person would have been very familiar with in, in their day that you and I may not, uh, may not be as familiar with. So if you go all the way back to the book of Joshua, the nation of Israel is entering the promised land. So this was a land that God had promised uh, to Abraham And to all of his descendants, God had made this promise to Abraham just over 400 years earlier. And so now, in the book of Joshua, 400 years after the promise has been made, now they're in the promised land. Finally, all those generations, we're in the land that God has promised. Now, Joshua, as the leader, Uh, It was his job then to divide up the land amongst the tribes of Israel. Now, the the nation divided itself into 12 tribes sort of 13 tribes. So uh, Abraham had 12 sons. And so that's 12 tribes. Uh, One of his sons, Joseph... Uh, received a double portion of the inheritance and so that makes it 13. Uh, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, So you throw those in, you take Joseph out and you substitute those in, you end up with 13 tribes. So everybody in Israel uh, was a member of one of these 13 tribes and he or she would have known exactly which tribe at that point uh, that, uh, that he or she was part of. And so, and I'm going to make this way simpler than it is. You can read it in Joshua 13 through 19. Joshua begins to divide up the promised land. And he says, tribe of Judah, you get this piece of land. That's your portion. And the tribe of Issachar, this is your portion. And the tribe of Benjamin, this is your portion. So he's dividing up the land. Thirteen tribes, he's dividing up the land. Now... This is not exactly how it happened, but let me paint a picture that'll help you see um, what, what did, how it did end. Uh, so imagine Joshua is standing there and there are 13 tribal leaders waiting to speak with him. And so the first one steps up and just, uh, Joshua says, all right, tribe of Judah representative, I'm giving the tribe of Judah this land. And then the next one steps up and the next one steps up. And by the way, when they get the land, they must have just been thrilled. Finally, we have the land. So the last one in this little imaginary way that this happened, the last one is the tribe of Levi. And so in my mind, the representative of the tribe of Levi he walks up to Joshua he's last in line but he's pretty excited because he's heard about all this vast land that's been given to to these other tribes and so he says to says to Joshua what is our portion of the promised land and Joshua paused and in my mind all of the tribe of Levi is looking on could have heard a pin drop what is our portion? And Joshua says, "Tribe of Levi, your portion is the Lord." And you read this in Joshua 13:33, by the way. Moses did not give a portion to the tribe of Levi. the Lord, the God of Israel, was their inheritance. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but this is just my imagination. I imagine the leader of the tribe of Israel at that point said, "Wait a minute. Our portion is the Lord. What do you mean? Everybody else gets land. We get the Lord. I mean, can we trade with somebody? Can we re-roll? Can we redo our turn? Can I speak with the manager? What do you mean? We're not getting any land. Our portion is the Lord. Well, in In truth, they knew before then that their portion was going to be the Lord. Moses had said that in Deuteronomy 10. But that is the background to what David says in Psalm 142, 5, when he says, the Lord is my portion. So let's go back to David's prayer. David says in verse 5, I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my shelter My portion in the land of the living. What David was saying that in the pressure cooker of life, he had finally learned that what he really needed was the Lord. He didn't need power, land, acceptance, praise, gold, wives. What he really needed was the Lord. Now, let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you have a grandfather here in Nacogdoches, and he is the wealthiest, wisest, most powerful, uh, most famous, most influential man that has ever been known in the city of Nacogdoches. He has 10 grandchildren. You're number 10. So... He's going to give out his inheritance and he's going to set the direction of the lives of his grandchildren. So uh, grandchildren number, grandchild number one comes up and he says, I'm going to give you all of Lake Nacogdoches and all the land that surrounds it. That's your inheritance. He's excited. She's excited, jumping up and down. What a great, what a great gift. Uh, Then the second one comes up and, and the grandfather says, I'm going to give you a 1000 acre ranch just to the North of Nacogdoches. And so he's all excited to the next one. Uh, The grandfather says, I'm going to make you the Kardashian of Nacogdoches. You're just going to be famous for being famous in Nacogdoches. Number four comes up and the grandfather says, I'm going to give you the biggest bank account and the biggest investment portfolio in town. And the number five person comes up and he says, I'm going to make you the the, the leader of the largest organization in Nacogdoches. You will be a power broker. Then number six comes up and he says, I'm going to make you the most beautiful person Nacogdoches has ever seen. Then number seven, you're going to be the greatest athlete. Number eight, you're going to have a brilliance that uh, outshines all others. And then number nine, you're going to be the greatest entertainer of your generation. And then it's you. Number 10, you can't wait. And the grandfather smiles and says, I am your portion and you'll always have my fondest love. And that's it. What David was saying is that he had come to the place in his life where he was glad to be grandchild number 10 because all he needed to be happy was the Lord. In the ups and downs, the victories and defeats, the times when the women were singing his praises in the streets, all the way to the times when he was slobbering over the gates of Gath, He had learned that life was not composed of wins or wealth or worship or power, victory, success. He learned that life was about the Lord. There have been other people who have made the same, other people in the Bible have learned the same lesson. I think about the apostle Paul. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, he said, and uh, it was painful. It was a thorn. It hurt Uh, It was continual, it was distracting, it was causing a a worsening wound. We don't know if the thorn was a physical thing or persecution or some temptation or some limitation in his life, maybe some emotional difficulty. It could have been a thousand things, but it was hard, it was painful, it was bad, and it was getting worse. So Paul believed the best thing that could ever happen in his life is that God would take the thorn away. And he prayed repeatedly, Lord, please, please take away this thorn. I want to be free of the pain, the aggravation, the distraction. I want to have fewer problems, greater comfort and an easier path. And so Paul repeatedly prayed this, but we see God's answer. Second Corinthians 12, nine, just listen. God said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Now what God was saying is What you really need, Paul, is not to get rid of the hardship. What you really need is the Lord. What you really need is me. But the only way you can learn that sometimes is in hardship. And so my power is perfected in weakness. God says, I'm not going to remove the thorn because I want you to learn the lesson. The Lord is my portion. And listen to what David said or what Paul said in response. He says, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that the power of Christ may reside in me. He said, the Lord is my portion. Now back to my three daughters. So girls, if this is the last time I get to speak to you this side of life, here's what I have to say. Here's the most important thing that I've learned. Your dad has had... A hard seventeen months. Uh, not as hard, perhaps, as somebody who's faced some great calamity or tragedy in life. Um, and in a lot of ways, my life has been very, very easy. But these have been, without question, the hardest seventeen months of my life. Uh, only my wife knows uh, all that has gone on and in me and around me, and it really is three completely different things that just all came together. And even my wife doesn't fully know the nature of the wounds. But in the hardest 17 months of my life, I have experienced the grace, the mercy, and the provision of God like I have never experienced before. And I have learned a lesson. Girls, I have learned a lesson in the last 17 months that i'm not sure i could have articulated two years ago i have learned that the only real thing i need in life is the lord i've learned that the lord is my portion the lord is enough so girls there will be many things in life for you to pursue There will be many pressures to do this or that, and I'm sure you will experience some great successes and some spectacular failures. But the sooner you can learn this one thing, the better off you will be. That one thing is the Lord is my portion. To know that the Lord is the only thing I need, and he is enough. I wonder if you can say the thing that David said and that Paul said. Now in your outline, you're probably pretty nervous because there's still several points. I read, a, I read a book this week by Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, late 17th century and uh, in the introduction of his sermon, he had 15 reasons why the Lord should be your portion. So I was going to share four with you. I won't share any of those. Uh, but they're on the website, and Just go to today's res- resource page and uh, all, of that's, all of that's there. But I, but I end with this. Life is filled with distractions and temptations and snares. The end of all of those pursuits is loss. But if we will pursue the Lord, no matter what comes, we will be able to say, The Lord is my portion and He is enough. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, Never thrown your lot with him. I'm telling you that there's nothing in life that's going to satisfy. Nothing. Nothing. The Lord is your portion. Would you trust what Christ has done for you on the cross? Surrender your life to him today. Lord, I'm hopeless without you. I trust you. And I want you to be everything to me. Did you do that today? Christians, we, we all live in the real world, right? We have problems and frustrations, and sometimes we slobber on the gates of gas, right? Life can be hard. But as Paul learned, sometimes in the midst of that frustration, as David learned, sometimes in the midst of the difficulty, we learned the most important thing. The Lord is my portion. That's all I need. You know, some people will learn that at the end of life, at the judgment. Some people will learn that very near the end of life. Some people will learn that only after some calamity has come. But let us be people who pursue the Lord and learn it today. Would you pray this prayer with me? Lord, help me to know to embrace. You are my portion. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.